Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Oed Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C., and welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. So this week, we read Parsha Miketz, which tells the story of Yosef's ascension to roles of power in Egypt. Last week, we saw how he ends up in Egypt. This week, we see how he ends up in power in Egypt. And it's, of course, an amazing story, um, and one that really centers or begins, hinges on his ability to correctly solve Paro's dreams, but not just solve them, propose a solution for them. And so today, what I wanted to look at is what the significance was of his dreams for both the Egyptians and for his own peoples. We'll call them the Jews, but really, of course, we're talking about the Israelites. Jews didn't exist yet as a concept. So first, let's look at what this meant for Egypt. Now, of course, Yosef's solution to the dream is you're going to have seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And so what should you do during the seven years of plenty? Store up all of the grain so that you have it available during the seven years of famine. Now, this is re this Paro reacts to this like right it's it's very pleasing to him and then Paro turns to his servants or his courtiers and says could we find another like him a man in whom the spirit of god all right so first of all you know we're, we take the story for granted but let's think for a second yosef is suggesting something that is pretty common sense right you're gonna have seven years of abundance. So store that up because afterwards you're going to have seven years of famine. Most of us could probably figure that out and we would not be immediately promoted to vice president of our organization. So what I think is interesting first to consider, I, I, I can't say this definitively, I'm not a historian, but I did try to poke around a little bit with this. It seems like Yosef here, what he really did was not invent the idea of storing grain because that should have been obvious, but create the idea of the government, so to speak, storing grain. One of the Mepharshim, who probably didn't have any historical reason to assume this, says that, oh, until now, rich people stored their grain. If you had grain, you stored it. And if you didn't have grain, well, you know, you just didn't have any. If there was a famine, you starved. What Yosef introduced is, hey, as a nation, as a power, as a monarchy, you guys should be storing the grain so that you control its distribution. This is no longer every man, every farmer for himself. This is now we control the grain distribution and we control the power. And so that's really the significance of what he introduced to Egypt. And as a side note, by the way, on the Torah.com, um, under the resources for Parshat Miketz, there's a fascinating article about Egypt's role in ancient famine. And it's very, very interesting because what the author points out is that all the areas in the region were dependent on rain to grow their crops. And so if there was a drought, then of course they didn't grow crops and there was a famine. However, Egypt was uniquely positioned in the region because they did not rely on rainfall in order to grow crops. They just irrigated water from the Nile. And so if there was a famine induced by drought, Egypt was simply spared star the starvation. They were spared the famine part. They could keep going proceeding as normal because they weren't relying on rain to grow their food. They were just using the Nile. And there is historical evidence of a famine of over 3,000 years ago 
in which Egypt did precisely this. They had a ton of grain and they sold it. Of course, they didn't give it. They were not altruistic, but they sold it to nearby nations for a hefty sum because they were the only ones who had any. So this is actually possibly a very interesting idea that Yosef really was the one who introduced the idea of the government being the ones to have the power over storing the grain and not just leaving it in the hands of the individual farmers. And so in that sense, that's really what Yosef did to radically transform Egypt into an even bigger power and an even more significant power and a wealthier power was by saying, hey, Paro, you can take control of this situation. You can control all the grain. You can control everything in this region during the seven years of famine that are coming up. And of course, we know that that's what happened. Egypt made a fortune off of selling grain to other peoples. And of course, tragically, a subject for another time, selling grain to its own people, when Yosef effectively makes them all sharecroppers um, of their own lands by taking everything that they have um, in exchange for food so that they wouldn't starve. So that's the significance of Egypt. But there's also a fascinating dynamic going on with what this means for the Jews, for the Israelites as well. And what first drew my attention to that, every year we notice different things about the text. What first drew my attention to that this year was looking at when Yosef is actually gathering the grain for those seven years. So this is chapter 41, verse 48 and 49. It tells us that during those seven years of abundance, Yosef gathered all of the grain and he put it in cities. Um, and so that, you know, he was basically just doing what he prescribed. He was storing the grain. And then in for, verse 49, So Yosef collected produce in very large quantity, like the sands of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So isn't that interesting? Now, what's interesting about that? At first glance, this is just saying, oh, Yosef was so successful. Egypt was so abundant. He gathered so much. But look more closely at the language. He gathers grain, kechol hayam. Now, chol hayam, the sand of the sea, is an expression that appears three times in the Torah. Well, actually, technically, chol hayam twice in the Torah. Um, but of course, in Breshid, it appears, So where does it appear these three times? The first time is when Hashem promises Avraham, don't worry, I will multiply your children like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then when generations later, a couple generations later, Yaakov is speaking to God and sort of says, wait a minute, God, what's going on here? You told me that my children were going to be kechol hayam, like the sands of the sea. And then the third time chol hayam appears is right now, is referring to the grain that Yosef is collecting. So chol hayam, its role so far in the Torah, is a promise, it is a vision of the eventual destiny of the Jewish people that will be as numerous as the sea. That, in the Torah, is not carried out at least in those words, but it is used to refer to as the grain. The grain was as much as the sea. 
And so I want to use that to suggest that the Torah here is using these words very specifically to teach us something about what this meant for the Jewish people, for Yosef and his family, and how they would grow into a nation a little bit later. And that this really represents for the Jewish people, the onset of the fantasy of Egypt. Now, what do I mean the fantasy of Egypt? What I mean is that I think that if you think about the experience of Yosef and then his family, and then the Jews as a nation in Egypt, it actually is bizarrely a life of fantasy. What do I mean by that? Yosef, of course, is the ultimate dream of what everyone would want, literally ascending from the lowest of the lows in prison to the top of the top and working directly for Paro. And he is then able to sustain his own family. And when they arrive, it's incredible. Paro says, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Here's a million things. Don't worry about your stuff. You can have whatever you want in Egypt. Everything in Israel, in Egypt, excuse me, that is good, you get. It's all yours. And he says, Paro says that one more than once. He tells Yosef that, right? You're going to get the best and you're going to live off the fat of the land. Now, that is more than just a generous offer. Remember, this is the middle of a famine. Everyone in the area is starving. And in the middle of a regional famine, Paro is promising, Yosef, don't worry. Your family is going to enjoy so many riches and so much abundance that I can give them. And so they all come. And if you remember, a very important thing happens. We see twice that you, that the brothers are not allowed to mention that they are shepherds because shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, there's a separate question of why that was true. But for our purposes, what does that mean? It means that they literally showed up and could not work because the very nature of their trade, let's say, was abominable to the Egyptians. So they get to show up to an all expenses paid life, not vacation, life, when they don't even have to work, they don't have to do anything. And they reside in Goshen and they live like this for hundreds of years. Just they're growing as a nation and they just they just get to enjoy the, the fat of the land, literally. They just that's all that they're doing. I mean, when you talk about fantasy, that's what I mean by fantasy, is that you are living in a famine, in uncertainty. I assume the animals were starving, people are starving. And suddenly, just with the snap of your fingers, you can be transported to a, a different land where your family is in charge. Everyone has to serve you and respect you. And you get to enjoy incredible abundance while everyone around you is starving. That is actually an incredible, incredible thing. Now, if they lived like that forever, it would be a problem. But of course, as we see in the beginning of the next book of Schmotes, that fantasy over the generations, it proves to be all an illusion. Because what happens? Yosef dies, all of his brothers die, all that generation. 
And then Uvnei Israel paru v'yishretzu v'yerbu v'yatzmu b'mod me'od. That the Israelites were fertile and prolific and they multiplied and they increased greatly. And that the land filled with them. This is interesting because the whole promise that we want for the Jewish people is that they're going to grow to be like Chol Hayam, to be like the sand on the sea. Where does that actually finally happen? It doesn't use the words Chol Hayam here, but suddenly the Israelites have grown tremendously in numbers so that the Torah has to use multiple, multiple words for it. Now, it seems like they don't even know that, but of course we do know who knows that. The Melech Hadash, Asher Lo Yada Yosef, the new king who arises, who didn't know Yosef. He looks and he says, uh-uh, this people is way too big and strong for us. Right, let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's outsmart them. Right, unless they grow even more, we're going to have to deal with a war. So the Egyptians recognize the growing number of the Israelites. and But they know, of course, this is not something friendly. This is something we're going to have to fight. So what do they do? So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And to do what? They built storage cities for Paro of Pitom and Ramses. Now, why am I talking already about Shemot? What I'm talking about Shemot is because I actually think that if you think about this scene here in Shemot, its connection to the beginning, to our Parsha this week, to Parsha Miketz, is extraordinary. Yosef invents the idea of the government storing grain. And he gets so much of it that it's like Chol Hayam. It's sort of like, I, I can't, I've been struggling all day to find a perfect connection between Chol Hayam of the grain versus Chol Hayam of the people. But there's some kind of connection that like, the Jewish people, our hope is to be like Chol Hayam, and somehow that hope gets twisted and ends up becoming part of this Egyptian fantasy. And as soon as Yosef is able to store that up, he has two children, and he names them Menashe, Kinashani, Elohim, Amalei, Vekol Beit Avi, right? That God has made me forget my hardship in my parental home. And what's the second one? Ephraim, Kihifrani, Elohim, Be'eretz Oni. God has made me fertile in the land of affliction. As soon as Yosef gets that grain that's like the Cholayam, He's able to say, I've got two kids. I'm going to name them after forgetting where I came from. And then my own fertility in the land of my affliction. That is exactly what this grain represents. And then Yosef and his brothers, they get to enjoy that fantasy for a long time. And But perhaps they got a little bit too comfortable. Because until we get to Shemot, we undo all of that. We see that. Now what is so big? The people, the Israelites have grown so big. But instead of that being their bracha, it is their curse. Because it, that is what causes the Egyptians to enslave them. And not only that, they are enslaved to build storage cities in Pitom and Ramses. Ramses is where, back in our parsha, the, um, the Yaakov's brothers, they're all settled in Ramses. The same place. And Yosef invents the idea of government storage of grain. And now, a few generations later, 
his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are the ones who are assigned in that same very place, the ones who are enslaved, to build out Yosef's idea further, to build those storage cities that may not have even been necessary to exist without Yosef's brilliant idea. And so I think what this shows us here is that yes, at first Mitzrayim looks like a very attractive place. It looks like all of our problems have been solved. But when you live in fantasy land, when your problems seem a little bit to be solved a little bit too easily, when you're comfortable finding all of those solutions in a nation, in a place that is not an altruistic nation, that is one that is motivated by power and by greed and by oppressing others, those fantasies, those dreams, that reality is going to become undone. And not only is it going to become undone, it is going to come back and be thrown back at your face. It is going to become to bite you, as we would say colloquially. And I think that that's exactly what happens here. The Jewish people, we enjoyed abundance in Egypt, but that abundance, that growth is exactly what oppressed us and caused out us to cry out wordlessly to God. So uh, I think that, you know, this is just something also to guide our, our further study of the Parsha this week is to think about what are other examples that are coming up where initially we enjoy things that end up becoming our very curses. Shabbat Shalom.